I'll invite you to take your Bible, and as you do, we're going to uh, turn to uh, Revelation 19. We're continuing in our study there. Uh, before I get to um, reading the, the Bible text this morning, I just want to, uh, again, highlight the importance of that, that uh, Sunday school time next Sunday, Q&A. Uh, I've already received some questions. Thank you for those who have prepared them. Um, I encourage more, and, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to that time, and I trust it will be uh, edifying and encouraging uh, to you. Uh, at least maybe answer some questions. So um, uh, Revelation's a, a challenge. It's been a challenging study for me, and I know uh, a lot of you uh, feel the same way, <laughs> both in your own study and then listening to me. You've likewise been challenged. So I have to acknowledge that up front. All right, Revelation chapter 19. This is the word of God. This is the word of God. So we, we listen to the word of God. It has all of the authority as if God were to speak out of the heavens and create the universe. This is the living and active word of God. So let's give it our full attention here. Revelation 19, 1 through 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of God. We thank him for it. I invite you to pray with me in preparation. We need the Spirit's help. Our Father, thank you. Thank you that you speak. You've spoken out of the heavens. You've spoken to prophets who've, who've written down your word. You spoke to the Apostle John who, who ultimately wrote this down. Father, we know we need this word. We're told at the beginning of this book that, that we're blessed to, to read it aloud. And we're blessed to hear and obey it. So we pray that you help us do just that. Lord, I know that... Um, as a proclaimer of this, uh, Father, I cannot accomplish your work. I have no power, yet your spirit has power. So that's what we're counting on to happen in this room, your spirit to take this word and apply it to us. So I pray that, we'd hear, that we would all hear the voice of your spirit beyond the voice of a mere man, that we would hear from you and that you would do that work in us that only you can do, making us wise to salvation sanctifying us in this truth, causing us to bear the image of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I, uh, 
I love weddings. I love especially Christian weddings. They're always an occasion for great celebration. I hear that there's a wedding happening here in, what is that, June? June, is that what's happening? Well, whether the participants know it or not, and I know the couple coming up in June do know this, but whether the participants in any wedding know it or not, uh, that wedding between a man and a woman anticipates something far greater. It's God's covenant love for his people. And that eternal reality is what is anticipated here in John's vision. This is in chapter 19. That marriage supper of the Lamb, it's, it's a glorious celebration of the people of God, that the bride uniting with the Lamb, who is Christ, united for all eternity. It has been through tribulation, through opposition, through suffering, the people of God ultimately find their eternal rest in the long-anticipated end to all that is corrupt and broken and the beginning, the beginning of unmitigated, exponentially increasing joy in the presence of the Lord. That's what's anticipated here. Now at the, the announcement that the marriage supper of the Lamb has come here in our text, John is showing us, and here's where I'm going with the message this morning, is showing us a great multitude praises the Lord for his justice, for preserving his people to witness in the world. Four phrases, I think that's how it works. That's how we're gonna look at this passage this morning. A great multitude praises the Lord for his justice, for preserving his people in order to witness in the world. So that's how we're gonna look at this passage this morning. First of all, a great multitude praises the Lord. For little kids, we know this, learning their numbers and learning to count, that, that kind of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? And, and I think back to my children learning, finally, and able to count to 100, and it seemed so huge to them. Of course, even as we know uh, how to count, and, and certainly as children get older, they can count way beyond 100. There really comes a point in counting, whether it's the number of jelly beans in that guessing game in the jar, or the number of people gathered in a football stadium. It's very hard to estimate, even. And it looks like just a crowd, or it looks like just a whole bunch of jelly beans. And the only reason that you would know that exactly 92,003 people watched a volleyball game at Memorial Stadium is not because you looked at it, right? Not because you said, huh, that's what, no, it's because they scanned the tickets, I presumably on the way in. It was electronically counted. What am I getting at here? In John's vision, he sees no crowd. But what he hears is this thunderous chorus of voices, and he determines it's not just a crowd. It's not just a multitude, but a great multitude that can't be numbered. So who are they? Who are this great multitude that he hears? Well, I take it that these are the ones that John first saw as recorded in chapter 7, verses 5 through 9. There, he heard about them. He heard about them. They were 144,000 sealed servants of God. And, I, and as I've said pri previously, I don't take that as to be a literal number, but really symbolizing the whole people of God. They're depicted there as clothed in white robes. They have been made pure by the blood of the Lamb. 
and as, as we continue in that passage back in chapter 7, when he saw them, they were a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. That's who this was. And this great multitude here in, in John chapter 19 is saying, hallelujah. And three times they say it. We see it in this passage. And, and one time, the, the 24 elders in the, uh, around the throne, they, they repeat it back in agreement. Hallelujah. That word, hallelujah. It's a very churchy word, isn't it? But it, it, it's really here in its form only in Revelation. That's really a compound. It's a compound. It's of two Hebrew words really transliterated into, into Greek and then now English. It's halal and yah. Halal simply means praise. And yah, it's, that's the shortened version of Yahweh, Jehovah, often rendered in our Bibles as Lord, all caps, small caps. That's to distinguish that word from the other Lord in our Bibles that's Adonai in Hebrew, simply meaning master or the one in charge. Yahweh, Jehovah, Lord, the Lord God. So praise Yahweh is what that means. Now anticipating this great marriage supper of the Lamb, the multitude is also the bride made ready. They are the ones praising the Lord. Now, I take it that this great multitude that John heard and that he previously saw, I take it that that great multitude is ultimately the fulfillment of a promise made way back in Genesis to Abraham. There, the Lord said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, I think you know this, but we learn this from the New Testament. Abraham's fatherhood is not ultimately a biological one. It's, in fact, spiritual. It is ultimately through faith in Christ. And the Apostle Paul pulled all of that together. He says in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, plural, meaning many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. And then he adds in 29, and if, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. So if you are in Christ this morning, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've trusted that he, the Son of God, bore the wrath of God in his own body for your sin on that cross, if you believe that to be true, if you believe that he did that for you, then you are included in that great multitude saying, hallelujah, recognizing that salvation and glory and power all that belongs to God. And you belong to the Lord because he is the one who gives salvation. It's his mercy and grace. And really, who can fully fathom it? And yet, the Lord has extended this grace, not only to you if you're in Christ this morning, but to a great multitude. And if indeed you are in Christ this morning, it is because your name was written 
before the foundation of the world in the book of the of life of the lamb who was slain that says that in Revelation 13, 8. So indeed, the Lord here, we see in 19, the Lord has accomplished what he set out to do. And the Lord for this is the one that deserves all the glory because he stands alone. He stands infinitely and above his creation and it is good and right and even commanded that he should receive our praise. Now, Revelation, you know, as we've seen going along, this is a book of contrasts. There's evil, there's righteousness, there's Satan, there's his counterfeit of unholy trinity contrasted with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's Babylon contrasted with the people who hold to the testimony of Jesus. There's the condemned contrasted with the redeemed. There are those who wail and grieve over Babylon's demise and those who rejoice. There are those who worship the Lord and there are those who blaspheme his name. It's full of contrasts. And as we think about that, looking, looking broadly at our culture, thinking about the state of the world today, I think it seems, it might seem, like the number of the people who belong to Christ, that is to say fellow disciples, it might feel like they're shrinking in number. But when we gather like this, what we're doing is we're coming together in anticipation of that great day. We come together to praise God in light of what we will be doing, declaring that hallelujah at the end of time. We are here to offer up our hallelujah, to thank the Lord for rescuing us from the world, to be grateful for all he's done and to give our, our focus to all that Christ has accomplished in anticipation of that day when Babylon, the evil world around us and the world system that hates God, that hates his word, in anticipation we gather for that day when that will be conquered, evil will be vanquished, death will be no more. So brothers and sisters, there's a great multitude in heaven and I pray that you will be part of that. And it all depends on where your faith is. And if you're trusting in Christ, you will be. But, but believers in Jesus, let's not squander the opportunity that we have. Let's not squander the opportunity that we have to gather together and, and heartily give our praise in anticipation of that day when we will be gathered with that great multitude of voices declaring hallelujah, praise Yahweh. And I would say this, if you, if you don't give your worship in, and praise to the Lord in this life, what makes you think that you would in the next? Now I know there are many professing, people profess to be believers who fail to give their praise to God. I know that's not true of you. I heard you singing, and I see you gathered. But let's take every opportunity that we have to add our voice, to declare the goodness of our God in anticipation of that day when we'll be gathered with that great multitude. This is choir practice. Let's be ready.
Well, let's continue with the phrase. A great multitude praises the Lord for his justice. For his justice. On a children's wood-shaped puzzle, it soon becomes obvious to a little child that they cannot fit the square through the round hole, right? But I was thinking, what if that puzzle had a piece that looked like a circle, but, but was ever so slightly elongated? It looks, but you know, it wouldn't fit, right? Technically, if it's not a true circle, it's technically an oval, but it can just be ever so slightly oval. Now, why do I say that? That which is true certainly is that which accords with reality as God sees it. So, conversely, Satan is in the business of promulgating lies. Lies do not accord with reality. Lies promulgate what is not true. But what is true is also something that is accurate, a true circle, something that is exact. And what the text is telling us here in this part of the praise the Lord's judgments are exact. They precisely fit as a response to evil, like the perfect circle that fits in that hole. The great multitude gives praise to the Lord because his judgments are true and just. True, they fit. True, they're a response to the lies, and just, they're righteous. All that is opposed to God is evil. And what evil does, it, it makes lines crooked. It warps circles. It distorts vision. Evil rusts. It decays. It breaks. It makes righteousness look undesirable. It makes sin look attractive. And ultimately, evil kills and God's necessary response to all that is evil are his precise judgments. They are exact. They are true. That is why they are just. And then we see here, the Lord has exacted his judgment upon the great prostitute. Now here he's referring to symbolic Babylon. And I take it that Babylon, this, this prostitute, is is human institutions, the, 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 cultural con the concentrated cultural, social, political, and economic power that perverts and corrupts and seduces entire nations into idolatry. Whether that's expressed as bowing down to some wooden thing that's been created, probably not. Or rather expressed as elevating self and the self-worship, which we very much can see in our generation, that idolatry of self. And because Babylon, this great prostitute, is bent on idolatry, she doesn't like opposition to that, so she kills the servants of the Lord. Now, back in, back in chapter 18, last time we dealt with, John heard the lament, this is chapter 18, verse 2, the lament of those who had been seduced by Babylon. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. They lamented. Now, in every generation, there have been people who have cried out to the Lord for justice. From the blood of Abel, 
to the plight of the Israelite tribes in Egypt under Pharaoh, the times of the judges suffering abuse and, and persecution from the Canaanite tribes, a lot often the Philistines, to then later on the Babylonian captivity. Reflecting on all that, I believe the psalmist expresses this longing of the people of God. Psalm 79.10, why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before your eyes. He's crying out, God, where's justice? Well, verse two in our text, we see the Lord's judgment ultimately avenges their deaths. That's when it happens. That's when the psalmist is satisfied. And in response to that, this multitude declares this second hallelujah. You've brought justice. It's finally done. And then they declare the, the smoke from her. Now the burning of Babylon, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So never again will the earth be corrupted. Never again will the nations be seduced into idolatry. Never again will the nations profit from her evil. No more demonic influence. Babylon is forever silenced. And the idea that the eternal smoke of, of Babylon's burning, that it's indeed in eternal, I think it's possibly an allusion to the unquenchable lake of fire we'll see later in the chapter in 19 verse 20. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get there next week. Where, in that lake of fire, into the sulfur, the beast and the false prophet and the rest that bear his mark will be thrown. Those that bear the mark of the beast, as we talked about in weeks past, are those who do not have the seal of the Holy Spirit. There's no in-between group either marked with the names of God on the forehead as illustrated earlier or marked with the sign of the beast figuratively, not literally on the hand or the forehead, 666, but really owning that, having rejected Christ. Now at this point, at this point, the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures who, who surround the throne of God, they hear this from the multitude and they heartily agree, declaring, Amen. Hallelujah. They say it too. Amen, meaning yes. So be it, Lord. This is right and true. Now, John saw these elders in an earlier vision, earlier visions, chapter 4, 5, and 11. And they're always shown in this posture of worship before the throne of God. And I, I take it, and I said this in previous weeks, that it possibly represents the whole people of God, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. That's a little speculative. But I think what it does, it reinforces the necessity for the Lord to be praised. And this is what they do as a voice from the throne. Possibly Christ declares in verse 5, even to re response of the praise of the people, the multitude, the voice says, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. There isn't anyone excluded from this. Praise isn't just for a certain group of people or a subset. All you peoples. If you're in a position of high authority, praise him. If you're in a position of low place, praise him. If you're on the fringes, praise him. If you're in the center of things, praise him. All. Now the punishment on Babylon that is celebrated in this scene, I take it 
is a reminder for the church today. Don't get entangled in the world. Do not acquiesce to Babylon's idolatrous moral system. Uh, I would say this, it's, it's kind of a sad thing today that there are many so-called churches that have done that. They've acquiesced. And I realize that these are political hot-button issues, but, but we see this going on. And, and I know that what I'm going to say is kind of red meat for social conservatives, but, but get, let's get past that and see the biblical aspect of this. And some of you know, mentioned this in weeks past, and it's very troubling, very influential. North Point Community Church in Atlanta, led by Andy Stanley, I mean, we read his books, listened to his sermons. He's dancing with the devil and embracing same-sex unions. Not overtly, but just kind of like, well, you know. And the ELCA, Evangelical, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, United Methodists, Episcopalians, well, they're already openly endorsing same-sex same unions. They're already doing that. One United Methodist Church, I think it was in Minneapolis area, they installed a drag queen as a pastor. In the absurdities of these things, the Lord Jesus must be absolutely grieved. We should be grieved. And long ago, they collapsed on the moral objection to killing the unborn. They don't have that anymore. And just so that we don't leave anybody out, there's still the social conservatives who are bound up in that health, wealth, gospel, name it and claim it and blab it and grab it prosperity stuff, Right? Social conservatives, but what do they do? While they hold to traditional morality, they make an idol out of money. These churches need to hear the warning. Heed it. The warning that was given to the church in Sardis, where Jesus said to them in Revelation 3:1, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive but you're dead. Now God is just and, and God's people, God's true people will praise him. And at the demise of Babylon, that may well be the demise of some churches who may be nothing more than the synagogue of Satan. Even as we, we praise God for his justice, we need to understand and be in serious prayer. God, keep us faithful. The drift can happen so easily. God, keep us faithful. Well, we'll continue. A great multitude praises the Lord for his justice and for preserving his people. For preserving his people. As I've had opportunity to spend time with couples preparing for uh, marriage, pre-marriage counseling. Uh, what I do is, my habit is I reserve that last session to discuss the ceremony. I, I do what I can, can in that discussion to encourage them to put the gospel on display. That's what I want them to do because I believe and, and Christians believe that the success of a marriage is really having Christ at the center. Now that said, it seems to me that most ceremonies, they're kind of about the bride, right? The planning, the decorations, the music, the venue, what the bridesmaids wear, what the groomsmen wear, what the groom wears. I think the bride has a lot to do with that. And really, for the groom's part, his job is to show up on time, know his vows, and have a thank you speech ready. 
right? That's kind of how it goes. I may be overstating it. Well, John's description of the scene in heaven continues with another hallelujah. And the occasion of this is the marriage of the lamb. But unlike earthly weddings, this is one where the bridegroom has done all the preparation. And the bride is done. Well, we'll see what the bride does. Um, the voice of this great multitude is described like the roar, the roar of many waters and the sound of peals of thunder. And maybe this, this added description uh, indicates some kind of crescendo. The hallelujah for, for, for God's justice. Well, that was there. But there's a bigger hallelujah, maybe. I, I don't know. But the innumerable crowd gives praise and glory to the Lord for how he has sustained his church, here in our text described as the bride. Now, if you're new to faith in Christ, the idea that the church, i.e. the whole people of God, the, the idea that the church would be referred to as the bride of Christ might seem strange. So in our text, chapter 19 includes it, ver, uh, chapter 21 and 22. That's where we see this in Revelation. It's really the only place in the Bible where it's explicitly stated that the, the people of God is the bride of Christ. That said, it was certainly in view when Jesus described his relationship with his disciples and he taught in parables about himself, equating himself with a bridegroom. So it wasn't for an idea. And that concept is certainly uh, at the central part of Paul's own exhortation to husbands and his family instructions in Ephesians chapter five where he says this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That the institution of marriage should be patterned after the love of Christ for his church, the Apostle Paul says this, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what he's saying is, look, you got human marriage? It's about Jesus. Husbands and wives, your marriage isn't about you. It's about Jesus. And God graciously allows you, husband and wife, to participate in that declaration of what it's like when a good marriage is patterned after Christ's love for the church. You, in your little family unit, get to put something cosmic on display. Well, what John is describing here is Christ presenting the church to himself, having cleansed her. He did the work. The bridegroom's doing the work. Christ has prepared and preserved his bride for this glorious day. And that thunderous praise includes the declaration, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And then there's this self-exhortation. The multitude says, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, in earthly, in our earthly weddings, in our lives, we, we expect the bride to make herself ready. It's, well, I've come to see it's really an all-day affair. There's the pedicure, the manicure, the hair, the makeup, the dress, right? The veil, all of that. that. That's a day. Maybe a few days, I don't know. But in John's vision, what did the bride do to make herself ready? 
And what has the church done to make herself ready for Christ? In Ephesians, Paul said that Christ died that she might be cleansed from sin. Christ died that she might be sanctified. Christ died that she might be made holy and blameless. What does the church have in this? What is the church's part in this preparation? I mean, that, I was kind of arrested by that the bride made herself ready statement, so I had to think about it. What does the church do? Well, if the church is any part in her own preparation, Jesus explained it this, this way. And I'm gonna refer back to John chapter five. The day after Jesus fed the 5,000 in the wilderness, he was teaching crowds. He'd crossed the other side of the lake and they, and they made their way there. And somebody came up to him and asked Jesus this. What must we do to be doing the works of God? So the we is a collective. What we, the people of God, what must we be doing to do the works of God? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. The work, Jesus says, is trust me, believe me. And in trusting and believing, you'll follow. So the work of the bride is simply, and I take it here in John 19, the preparation that she has made was to separate herself from Babylon, to say, I'm denying that. I'm setting myself apart from Babylon. I'm not part of this world system. To deny self, as Jesus said, to take up the cross, as he said, and follow. Well, how is it that the church would endure? How is it that the church would resist the allure of Babylon? And verse 8 answers that question. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. It was granted. It was given. That's grace. God is doing the given. It was granted. Grace ultimately sustains. God determined in eternity past that he would set apart a people unto himself. A people, but he also determined who would be among those people. This is what Jesus said in John 6, again, back in the wilderness where he was teaching. He said this, all, he's referring to people, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Skip down to verse 40. This is 37. That was 37, now 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son, looks on the Son and believes in him, should have eternal life. And Jesus said, and I will raise him up in the last day. I will. Not, I might. I hope I get a chance to. Perhaps, maybe. No, I will raise him up on the last day. A statement of absolute certainty. All that the Father gives to me. The Father says, here. Here are your people. And those people will come to Jesus. Say, I believe you. And Jesus said, I'll raise them up, which means that they will endure. There's no way that they will be lost. I will raise them up on the last day. 
And here pictured in Revelation 19 is that last day. And the bride clothed in fine linen, John explains what that is. It's the righteous deed of the, deeds of the saints. So not only has the bride, that is to say the church, been set apart by Christ, which is in itself an immeasurable act of grace, but that grace also includes both the command and the power to be a righteous witness against the evil in the world. A very familiar verse, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then he says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And what comes next? Good works which you thought of? Good works which you decided that figured out? Hey, God, I can serve you. No, good works that God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. That's beautiful. Any good thing you do is a work that God set before you and said, hey, here's an opportunity. Hey, here's how you live out your faith. Hey, this will honor me. God prepared it in advance for you to do. It is through faith in Christ that the church is clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. So brothers and sisters, we are called not only to believe in Christ, but to behave after Christ. And by the grace of God, effectuated by the Holy Spirit, who indwells us, we can and must, must look like Jesus' disciples. So what does that look like? And I thought here would be an occasion just to, just to pause and, and talk about one of the things that we do around here as we think about what is a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to look like Christ? And we have a mission statement here, leading people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And, and you can get this card. It's at the welcome desk. It says, marks of discipleship. Here's what a follower of Jesus looks like. Here's what, is, what do those people look like that are going to endure? How, are they, how can they be picked out in the world? These are external, visible. Well, the first one is you identify with Christ. And we're going we're gonna to have that today, somebody identifying with Christ in baptism. Identifying with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. That identification symbolized in going into the water. Jesus' death was for me. Coming out of the water, his resurrection is my life. But also identifying with his people. That's why we make a big deal of church membership here. Identifying with Christ and his church. In Acts, it tells us that uh, those who believed were baptized and were added. They didn't go off and do something else. They were added. Well, what else does a disciple, what else is a, a mark of a disciple? Well, they gather. They're here. They don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but they make a priority of meeting together as you are in the habit of doing. So that there's worship, so that there's fellowship, so that there's an encouragement in the word, so, th so that we, when we leave this place this morning, we'll go away with the knowledge that there are other people who love Jesus, 
We'll go away with the knowledge that we've been encouraged in the word. We'll go away with the knowledge that we're gonna have to endure some things before we get to that great day of celebration. So we gather. The third thing, third mark of a disciple is that you become like Christ in character. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children, the Bible says. Put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. We, we, as followers of Jesus, want to reflect the character of Jesus. And I would say this, as somebody who claims to be a believer in Jesus but says, ah, you know, the whole obedience thing, I'm just mad. But hey, Jesus is my Savior. Well, if he saves you from your sin, he's also going to save you from the power of that sin to, to rule your life. So we're becoming like Christ. The other mark, the fourth mark, is that we serve. We serve in the church and represent Christ in the world. With the stuff that he's given to us, with the time that he's given to us, with the ability that he's given to us. That's a disciple of Jesus. And we don't, do, we don't have these things perfectly nailed down. A couple of them are just sort of like binary. Either identified with Christ or not. You're either a member of church or not. We gather. It's a decision you make. Sometimes you're pulled away. Becoming like Christ in character is a trajectory over time. Your, your character changes. Learning to serve, learning to steward what God has given to you, that grows over time. This is what a disciple of Jesus looks like. This is what that multitude at the end, praising God, saying hallelujah, will look like. Is this you? Let me ask you, is this what you want? Do you want to be bearing the marks of discipleship in Christ? Well, finally, a great multitude praises the Lord for his justice, for preserving his people to witness in the world. That's the final heading. So Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, Micah, what do they have in common? What are you going to say? They're prophets, right? They're prophets. They were given that responsibility they heard the word of the Lord and wrote it down. And we have their words, the words of God in our Bibles. And John here, the apostle of Jesus, has written down what he has seen and heard. And that makes him a prophet as well. We see that in chapter 1, verse 3. Now here in, in chapter, uh, sorry, verse 9 of, of 19, the angel tells him this. Write this. Okay, so that's the, that's the work of a prophet, to write something down. Now, he's been doing this, but he's told, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, well that, that's just good news for us, right? If you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's good news. It, it's sort of a, kind of a summary of all that, that's, that's been explained here. You're going to be blessed if you're there. And he said, this is what John's writing down, he said to me, these are the true words of God. Okay, so there's some authority behind this. You're blessed. This is the true word of God. Now, at this point, it, it's odd because it looks like John is confused because he assumes that the truth that he is hearing, he presumes the identity of the one telling it. The truth that he's hearing, he presumes the identity of the one telling it because he hears these are the true word of God. It must be God telling him. Verse 10, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. <laughs> okay, there's the problem, right? But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Direct your worship in the right place. Now, why? 
ask the question, why? I take it here that this happened to teach John something that was so vitally important. The next thing the angel says, well, before I get to that, when the angel told him the true words of God, what he was saying is that the message is authoritative. And now we can understand even if it is mediated through a messenger. Now, of course, that was the case, right? The message is true even if it's mediated through a messenger. So that was true, of course, for Moses. It was true for Elijah, Isaiah. It was true for the apostles. But now the angel is telling him, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's an odd statement. But listen, stated another way, it's this. The same spirit that moved the prophets of old is the same spirit that empowers the witness of the church. Again, I'll say it. The same spirit that moved the prophets of old to write down and give us our Bibles is the same spirit that empowers the witness of the church. So church, we must hold fast to the word of God. We must never compromise. We must never obscure the word of God. We must never soften its hard edges, its judgments, its condemnations in order to make it more palatable to the world. We must never do that. We must never distort or add to the gospel. And the only way that we will endure through ostracization, through persecution, and even death is to hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. Church, we must hold fast. This is what Paul told Timothy, that young pastor. Talked about, he said this, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's what the church is, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We hold it forth. It's a buttress. It protects us. And that witness is not only on the horizontal plane, but the church has been appointed to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, which will serve to judge the demonic powers of Babylon. The Apostle Paul says, says this in Ephesians 3 to really explain it. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was to the eternal purpose that he, God, has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. That is the testimony of Jesus we must hold fast to the word of God, the word of God which has been breathed out by the Holy Spirit, 2 Timothy 3.16, which is profitable, useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that, so that people can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The living and active word of God, Hebrews 4.12, that, that pierces to the very core of our being, dividing joints and marrow, Judging and, and examining the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, it not only brings life, but it tears us apart and reads us. We must hold fast to the word of God. The same power, the same spirit that drove the prophets to write down is the same spirit that empowers the witness of the church when we hold fast to the word of God. So, that should be an encouragement to us. 
our prophetic witness in the world is entirely based on the fact that it's been written down. We have nothing to say apart from the book. And we have everything to say because of the book. Let's not underestimate what we have. Well, we're part of the great multitude and we're looking forward to that day when we are saying our hallelujah, the great marriage supper of the Lamb and we will praise God for his justice, for making things right that were wrong, for, for avenging the blood of the martyrs Babylon will be no more, never to rise again. We will praise God because he has preserved us and protected our witness in the world. Brothers and sisters, I hope, I hope you're looking forward to that day. Well, let's pray. Father, we want to be those people. We want to be people who lift our voices in praise. We want to be those people who say hallelujah We're grateful, Father, for your justice. We know it will be finally complete when Christ returns. Lord, we know that you will preserve us. We pray, keep us faithful. And Father, would you strengthen our witness in the world as we hold fast to the testimony of Jesus, ready to proclaim this truth. Because Father, because of your word, because of your gospel, because Jesus died and rose again to bear our sin and give us eternal life, Father, because that's true, we have everything to say and we have eternal hope. I pray that it would just spill over in everything that we do. For the glory of Jesus, we pray it. Amen.